another idea that that often comes along with this passage is the idea that procreation with same-sex relationships is not possible, and so um, it's contrary to it. It's contrary to Genesis 1, and is it just this weak argument? It's, it is. When heterosexual couples are, are unable to procreate, this, tell me, do we, do we think when heterosexual couples are unable to procreate that this makes their companionship or their marriage any less valid? Sexuality within these marriages is exclusively for the purpose of pleasure and intimacy, Again, the celebration of companionship. I, I, I dare you to go back home at Thanksgiving and at the, at the, at the table have a conversation about this and with your, with, with your um, creationist perspective, maybe aunt, but also that cousin at your table who is going through IVF currently. We can't use procreation here as, a, as an argument against same-sex relationships because God's goal, God's entire goal through Genesis is that we might be in community and companionship with each other. So let's move on a little bit further in Genesis. Um, Genesis 18 and 19 uh, we get Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and for a millennia, uninformed readers of this text have tied the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to the mob of men's desire to have sex with the messengers sent to Lot's house. And this is where we actually have gotten the word sodomy from this story and our misuse of this story. The, the sins for which Sodom and Gomorrah were judged were not homosexuality, as televangelists have, have made us believe over time. It, rather, the, the city's sin is their lack of hospitality. A hospitality was at the core of their conceptions of morality, and the people in these cities were were proud and selfish and self-indulgent. And we know this, that, that this is their sin from, from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50 actually blatantly says, very plainly writes that, that Sodom's sin is a lack of hospitality. There's another scripture that often is placed, um, uh, you know, kind of at odds with this Ezekiel passage. Um, uh, Jude 7 talks about the unnatural flesh of, um, of Sodom, but, but this was, was still just referring to the raping of angels, not, not men. That the, it was that, these, that these, these persons, these visitors that came to the house were, were God, godly beings, were angels, and that the unnatural flesh relation and the original Hebrew would have would have been more relating to it would have related to the fact that they were supernatural beings, not the fact that they were men. And so these stories, they've just been taken this 
life of their own, haven't they? If you heard about these stories like I have, if you've heard people talk, you know, they stake everything in these stories. This is how we know that God hates, hates this sin, and they just are not at all about this. We're missing the point. So let's look at those um, Leviticus passages then, okay? So let's talk about those Leviticus passages. Um, let's, so Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. Um, so this primarily had to do um, with the patriarchal lens that the Hebrew people adopted as their worldview at the time. Um, the, um, Leviticus is this holiness code for um, the Jewish people. It's this set-apart code. Um, and it was meant to keep the Hebrew people from being like the worshipers of Melech, the, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the surrounding dominant polytheistic cultures of the time. Many of these cultures worshipped gods of fertility and love, such as Astarta and Ishtar and, and part of the worship of these gods included sexual sacrifice even. It was believed that by depositing semen into the body of a priest or priestess of the goddess, would, it would lead one to a prosperous and eternal life. In Egypt, worship of the god Melech and, and, and the goddess um, Ashtoreth involved rituals in which individuals of both sexes would have sex with one another to worship and, and appease the deities. And in Mesopotamia, male cult prostitutes to the goddess, goddess Ishtar would, would dress like women and dance in public processions as sexual sacrifice before God, and it was common for Egyptian men to rape men that they had conquered. And so these Jewish purity codes this um, holiness code, these set apart, this set apartness code, it emerges in this incredibly narrow context, a context meant to, to be applied among the small collection of tribes that was the Hebrew people at the time of its writing. And most codes, most of these codes are, are centered on preventing Jewish people from engaging in sexual acts between members of their same family. Read the ones right around these two Leviticus passages. Read, read the verses just around Leviticus 18.22 and, and Leviticus 20.13. Most of them are centered on, on preventing Jewish people from engaging in sexual acts with members of their family. In Deuteronomy, which is where the moral codes are written that are given over to the Jewish people, you know, the Ten Commandments. There is not one condemnation at all of same-sex relationships. Which should help us understand the difference between Leviticus and, and, and Deuteronomy. Between these where, you know, uh, we have heard it said over and over again in Leviticus, the, you know, homosexuality is, is an abomination before God. And then you get, you know, Deuteronomy where we get, um, thou shall not steal, thou shall not kill, thou shall love the Lord your God. The difference between these two is, is profound. Often we make, we think that Leviticus is this moral code, but it would have never been interpreted as to have anything to do with morals. Um, it, it had one purpose, 
not to lay out expected morals, but to distinguish the Jewish people as worshipers of the one true God and not the God of other cultures where all the sexual sacrifice is happening in worship. And it was Deuteronomy that was the moral code. How, what is the good and right way that the Jewish people should live? What, what are the morals? What is right and what is wrong? It's in the Deuteronomy codes that we are given this. It's where we get the Ten Commandments and not anywhere in the moral codes in Deuteronomy is there ever one condemnation of same-sex relationships. The new covenant of Jesus Christ, um, it, in, in this new covenant, the holiness codes, the purity laws become of no use for God's plan or the expanding of covenant to all of humanity. It has no use anymore, but it's the Deuteronomic codes that still have place. Jesus often says, you've heard it written, but I also say to you, right? The holiness codes written for a particular Jewish people in a particular place on the borderlands of these other cultures and, 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 and cult worship practices, that's what, that was written for that time. But in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, the holiness codes, not the same thing as the moral code of Deuteronomy, became of no use for God's plan and expanding of this covenant to all. So that's the Old Testament. Uh, that's, that's how we can use scripture to prove that it is not about all these scriptures that have been used as weapons. These, none of them are about Homosexuality being abomination. It, they're not, it's not even remotely connected. It's not the core of the conversation. And so, but now let's, let's move on to the, the New Testament. Um, and when we move on to the New Testament, who do we get, right? Where do we find this conversation coming to life? Among the writings of Paul. And so in Romans 1, um, 26 through 27, Paul um, says, um, says these words. Let me, let me actually um, get my Bible out and read them because they're not, they're not actually that long. And um, I want to make sure I, I guarded our time um, for this podcast, but I do think that we can read these um, particularly. So Romans, um, Romans 1, 27 through 26, it says this, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural rela relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Um, so Paul here is, is, is obviously referencing some sort of sexual relationship between people of, of the same sex, right? Both men and women. Uh, and, and is declaring it to be sinful. But again, when reading any biblical text, it is wrong to assume that the text is speaking about any modern day equivalent of whatever may seem to be referenced here. It's, it, Paul would have had no comprehension of modern-day same-sex queer relationships, the queer community as we know it today. 
And then also, what's the point of this text? The point here is, the point of this entire text, all of, of Romans, um, is to call out the church in Rome for its judgmental attitude towards pagans. He is convicting them of, of their own sin of judgment. Paul is writing the letter to the church in Rome from Corinth, the second most prominent city in the Roman Empire, where in both and, and well throughout the Greco-Roman world, worship of the great mother goddess um, Magna Mater was one of the primary religious and cultural practices. Throughout any city in the Greco-Roman world, thousands of priests and priestesses of Aphrodite and, uh, and Sybil and, and Ar Artemis and, and Venus would be seen. And, and there was this large temple dedicated to one of these prominent, these prominent go goddesses. And the worship of these goddesses, they usually involved sacred sex of all kinds as an act of worship to, to this goddess. Male priests were almost always effeminate, cross-dressing, were commonly castrated, preventing them from performing their natural sexual role, which rendered them less than men in this patriarchal world. Temple priests and priestesses would, would often live together as a marginalized community in this patriarchal society and would engage in regular sexual activity with one another. And in Paul's mind, and in much of the Greco-Roman world, sex, sex was seen as an act for procreative purposes only, not intended for pleasure at all in this world. Uh, and natural sex was procreated. Unnatural sex was anything other than procreated. Anything that would, would, would be an act of sex for pleasure. Anyone participating in ritual sexual acts then would be considered immoral and unnatural. And so uh, notice the language in verses 26 and 27. This unnatural, unnatural comes up. Um, almost no Christian church today upholds the sexual ethic of Paul. We no longer believe that semen, semen is sacred, is the sacred substance, and that the, the, that the wasting of it constitutes some grave moral sin. And, and unnatural here is obviously referring to sex in general that is not for procreative purposes. Unnatural has nothing to do with the fact that it's man, woman, 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 man, man. It, it's, it's, that's not the point here for Paul. It's definitely not the point for all of Romans. To, get, to, to condemn queer sexuality as immoral based on this text, we must also condemn all non procreative sexual activities as equally sinful. Because that's, that's where Paul was at. Male same-sex sexual relations were quite common in, in the Greco-Roman world that Paul lived in, but most of those expressions were, were linked to, to pagan temple worship and pagan dinner parties that were, that were known as um, convivious um, and prostitution and an abuse of slaves and um, 
pederasty, which is um, this, the, the, the apprenticing of boys that would do sexual favors for those older men that they were apprenticing under. Paul is referencing, Paul is referring to the, the sexual acts themselves, not, not the nature of persons committing these acts. Do you see how that's different? And how we've made it about something it wholly wasn't ever even about. Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians um, 9, um, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Um, this is another one of those passages. I'm going to pull this one up real fast for us um, as we, we finish up with, with some conversation about the New Testament and, um, and, this, conver- and, and this topic. Um, so, yeah, in um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, um, it says, um, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolatrous nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Hmm. Well, there's our words. Um, so the words Paul uses here, male prostitutes, um, sometimes in certain versions you're going to uh, see sodomites, um, are, are these Greek terms, um, malakoi, and arson, um, arsenokoitai. Arsenokoitai is, is literally made up of, it's like multiple words strung, strung together. Um, and it's, it's, it's literally made up of multiple words, and it is a completely made up word. <laughs> um, Paul uses it here in 1 Corinthians 6. And before this moment in scripture, never once was this word found in ancient ancient literature until after Paul's usage of it. Paul Paul created this word after looking at the Greek translation of Leviticus, those two passages in Leviticus, Leviticus 18, 22, and 20, 13, Paul creates this word just out of scratch. Like, it's not a word before Paul uses it. Um, And it literally translates to man bed. And most scholars agree that this, again, likely refers to some form of ritual rape or temple prostitution, as discussed with the the Leviticus passages earlier, right? And, And let me also say, Paul could have used so many other words here, but he didn't. There were count, I mean, like 20, 22, 23 other words in the Hellenistic Greek lexicon that would have had something to do with homosexuality or same-sex relations or some kind of derogatory terms related around patriarchy and um, masculine and feminine roles. There are like 20, at least 20 words, 22, 25 words from the Hellenistic Greek lexicon that he could have used here if it was really about that. Um, but Paul makes up this word instead because none of the words that they currently had truly encapsulated, I guess, what Paul believed he was seeing in, in the church in Corinth, right? 
And it was this, this adopting of some of these ritual rape sacrifices and temple prostitution. And then this other word, um, malakoi, which is, which is one of the common Greek words that, that translate in modern vernacular. It, it translates as effeminate men or, or effeminate boy. The most basic meaning of this word is, is literally like soft. And it's most often used to describe the texture of clothing or a soft breeze or a gourmet food, the texture of a gourmet food. But sometimes it's used to talk about men. When the word is used in a moral sense in, in the ancient world, it most often suggests that some, someone who, is, who lacks courage or is lazy, which would have, they would have related to feminine indisposition. Women were seen as lesser because they were literally soft, this word malakoi, and, and also penetrable. It would have been assumed that if a man was taking the sexual role they would normally associate with a woman in a relationship, then he must be giving up his coveted masculinity and strong male nature. But it doesn't have to mean they were in sexual relationship. It, it, it could just mean Paul is using a word that means the same as what we often use in our society to say he's girly or he throws like a girl in, in our kind of boys will be boys kind of culture, right? If you have ever said anything like this or any other words, I can think of a slew of words I've heard in the same kind of genre, but that's really what this word is. Paul is, Paul is a man of his times. And that's what we get here. It should make us still feel ugh, like, ugh, when we read it, but not for the same reasons. Paul is a man of his times, which means his culture and religion were deeply rooted in patriarchy. And, and that led him to view anything feminine as less than ideal and especially as it relates to the gender norms of the time. But most of the time, we have, in, in every case thus far, we've taken what is the context of the time and we've placed it on our own context and we have made broad swipes as we talk about scripture to say that God is against homosexuality and pointed at modern day examples and incorporated in, and we know that this is not what scripture gives us. We've just, we've lost all of, all the point. We've lost all the point. And so where do we go from here? That's that's what that's what that's our next question. Um, as we wrap up, where where do we go from here? Um, we we if we have take all these verses and we realize that 
none of their purposes was to, to, to God never <laughs> intended in any way to make a point that homosexuality is wrong, right? God has never once made a swiping gesture or a, um, a, 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 a pointed critique or, or anything about that. We have, if, if all of these we found out, the purpose of them is, is not at all related to same-sex relationships or queer sexuality, then our way forward is to ask, then what does God care about? If God doesn't care about this, if God didn't say this, if God never meant that, then what does God care about? We, we say that God, God cares for what is good for us. God wants what is good for us. God doesn't harm us. God draws us closer. God doesn't want harm for us. God wants us always, always living in a way that will draw us closer to God. And so God wants covenant. God wants covenant with God. God wants covenant community. God wants what's covenant companionship among God's people. Companionship, communion, and hospitality. We see this and we call this now, this, we see this redemptive trajectory, this progressive revelation of God, this redemptive trajectory through, through scripture, um, the, the good news of Jesus in Mark 1, the ever-expanding kingdom of God in Romans 14, um, it, that the, this kingdom is for the oppressed. We read, we read the Bible like Jesus reads it. If we start reading it like Jesus reads the Bible, um, this progressive revelation um, that the belief that God reveals more and more and more and more truth over and over and over time as humanity is able to receive and adopt the fullness of truth. In, in, the, in the Christian tradition, Jesus is the embodiment of that fullness of truth. Um, we see that in Matthew 5 and in Mark 12, and we know that Jesus, for Jesus, this was never a conversation. The, the, the Jewish understanding of, of the Midrash and the Torah um, leads us in a direction to know the ever-expanding and always, always unfolding nature of God's word, continuing revelation by the Holy Spirit, Paul's radically inclusive gospel. Even when Paul is in this patriarchal context, Paul writes God's secret plan in Romans 3 that it will include all the world, and including us, that this is no longer for for just the Jewish people, that that was not God's intended purpose all along, but, but that through this progressive revelation of God, there's this belief that God reveals more and more truth, and we are now a part of that truth, a part of that revelation. Um, and so if these scriptures that we have used for so long as the only basis, the only basis for God's no, God's anti-inclusion, God's being against same-sex relations and, and, and queer sexuality. If these, these scriptures that have been used for this prove to not be at all related to this, that God never said that, then the whole of scripture is this beautiful, ever-unveiling, ever-revealing truth of Jesus's radical, redemptive love for the world. There's space, then. There's space for scripture, then, to point us straight to inclusion. 
there it seems so obvious now doesn't it that scripture it doesn't point us away it points us towards because when you take those those few little verses that have been misused and tell the whole story there's no there's no basis for the other story it's been misused and abused and what god cares about is is the is our good is that 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 the way we live with those we love the way we serve with those we serve that we would find life and companionship and communion with God and each other in a way that would draw us closer to God and I will tell you some of my LGBTQ siblings and faith are drawing closer ever more closer to God so much more closer than I feel like I am and are drawing me by their life and their witness closer to God as well. I see the good at work in their lives. I see covenant relationship between them at work in their lives. I see, I see them drawing together in, in communion and, and, and in sanctifying grace and companionship and offering hospitality to the stranger and hospitality to the person who has been um, ostracized from the church. It is, there's, this is, the future. <laughs> this is where this takes us. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus that is for all.